Health is the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. These days, we have to basically be different than the vast majority of people. And um, as a woman, it's actually even more important to be healthy because your job is to like basically create the next generation of the species. And also like a lot of women create important companies and products. And we offer a really different perspective on life than men do. You know, basically what I'm trying to figure out is how do women thrive in a society that's really designed for men? (laughs) Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hello, hello, Bettys. Welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, Stephanie Estima. And today I am bringing you a conversation with Dr. Molly Malouf, and we are talking all about female stress, female health and adaptation, trauma, psychedelics, sexuality. It is a juicy conversation. So a little bit about uh, Dr. Molly. Uh, she is a uh, medical, uh, she's a medical doctor. Um, she's a lecturer in the wellness department of the medical school at Stanford University, where she is, teaches a course called Live Better, Longer, Extending Healthspan to Lengthen Lifespan. Since 2012, she's also worked as an advisor or a consultant for more than 45 companies in the digital health, consumer health, or biotechnology industries that need help with clinical strategy, um, scientific marketing, et cetera. Um, She is really on the forefront of personalized medicine, digital health technologies, and biofeedback-assisted lifestyle interventions. So what did we talk about? Well, first, uh, I I first met her on Clubhouse, back when Clubhouse was a thing, and she was recording the psychedelic news hour. Um, and I happened to tune in that day and they were talking about physician burnout. And I really resonated with the conversation being a physician myself going through, uh, my schooling and being like the most unhealthy that I had ever been, you know, paradoxically becoming a healthcare provider. Um, and then of course, hanging up my shingle when I was licensed to treat patients and shocker, no one showed up. Like I had to learn about business. So what they were talking about was really uh, very impactful for me. I reached out to Molly and here she is today talking about stress, the stress response uh, for females, how it is different uh, from our male counterparts, um, how the difference between oxytocin and vasopressin different, like the, the, the sexual dimorphic differences between men and women, We'd also talk about trauma. Um, so how uh, women may experience, uh, for example, uh, physical trauma, sexual trauma, and then what that does to the way that we live our life as adults, whether that happened as a child or as a young woman. So we get into psychedelics as a mode of therapy for being able to process the trauma uh, and being able to rewrite the story. Uh, I will add in, of course, a caution that 
any psychedelic uh, assisted therapy, uh, save for ketamine uh, assisted therapy, is still considered a schedule one drug. These are illegal drugs that are not that are not recognized uh, currently by the government as having any medical use. That being said, I still um, believe that psychedelic therapy is a uh, when done correctly, when the set and setting and intention is there, and the integrative therapy there afterwards uh, is done correctly, this can be a very powerful medium for healing. And then finally, we also talk about sexuality and sensuality and how trauma relates to that. So I think you're in for a really great conversation. We um, had a time constraint, so we sort of finished it up uh, with a part two, uh, and I'm looking forward to the next time that that happens. But without Further ado, without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Molly Malouf. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms, and here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Dr. Molly Malouf, I am just thrilled to welcome you to the Better Podcast. This is a long time coming. Welcome. I know. It's been so busy the last few months months and frankly the last two years um I don't know about you but when the pandemic started I just went right into high gear and just nonstop work and so it's been uh a lot of lessons learned I have to say <laughs> and I'm I'm so happy to have you on here today because I had originally um I had originally met you over uh on Clubhouse which is yeah which I think it's such a special time I don't think there's ever really been anything you know, like it, where you could sort of interact with people in, in the way that, um, yeah. in the way that we were, and you were, you were recording, I believe it was psychedelic news hour. And the, the topic yeah. was physician burnout. And I was like, Oh, that's me. I really, really resonate with that. I really want to speak yeah. a little bit more to you. So I'd reach out to you on Instagram and, and here we are. So, yeah. So before we kind of get into some of the topics that I want to sort of parse apart with you, just by way of background, uh, you're a medical doctor by training. What are some of the yep. interests in terms of your practice and in terms of your entrepreneurial uh, pursuits? Sure. Okay. So I've been basically trying to develop a practice over the last 10 years and been somewhat successful at it, at, at trying to understand how do you measure and optimize health? You know, like what is health? Because I know that disease is diagnosed and treated, but I was like, I want to build a practice about health. And I started studying it from a first principles perspective, because I really felt like, um, there was all these different disparate categories of, of like health optimization tools. There was precision medicine, there was personalized medicine, there was Chinese medicine, naturopathic medicine, integrative medicine. And I was always asking, what are the first principles underneath all of this? What are actually the biggest predictors of health? And how do we basically prevent and predict disease before it happens. Um, and so I got to basically spend 
a lot of time and a lot of very wealthy executives money ordering lots of labs on people and taking a really long medical history and basically doing perfect world medicine. And in order to fund this practice, you know, it wasn't just like I started up a practice and had like much income. I actually had to figure out how to build a practice. So I um, started start. I started consulting with startups. And so I, I had a very strong connection to the healthcare system because of having worked in it since I was in ninth grade. And I basically did a lot of volunteering. I was a phlebotomist at one point. I worked in a hospital lab. So I had a lot of experience in hospitals and a lot of volunteering experience in hospitals. Then I became a doctor. And, and so these startups were looking for guidance on how to create products and services that would work within the healthcare system. So I got to basically work with 50 different companies, brands, um, supplement companies, biotech companies, wearable tech, consumer health, food, you name it. I've worked with them. And it's been basically a really long journey over the last 10 years of trying to like understand health from a first principles perspective, and then also use that knowledge and use the knowledge of the healthcare system to bridge this gap between the technology world and the healthcare world. And in the process, kind of becoming like a, a, a health expert, a futurist, an innovator, and somebody who was always asking like, what are the deeper questions underneath all of this? Um, that led me to blood sugar monitoring. Initially, I was one of the first doctors to put a blood sugar monitor on people. Um, one of the downsides of being a futurist is you're almost too, too many years ahead of most people. And so it's hard to actually build products when nobody knows what you're doing, or understands it. But I got to pave the way in that field. And I now am an advisor of levels, but I, um, I basically started teaching at Stanford three years ago and they were like, can you teach us what you know about health span? So that's when I really started taking my thoughts and putting them into a coherent framework and it's getting better and better every year, but basically I, I'm now, you know, building a company around the science of human connection and really how trauma and how our life experiences actually change our bodies and our minds epigenetically and actually change how we react to stimuli, change how we make decisions around our health, change how we interact with our loved ones. And I'm really trying to crack the code of why people who know Everyone knows that we should eat, be eat better. Everyone knows we should exercise more. Everybody knows that we need to we need to stress less and spend more time in our communities. But why don't we make these decisions? And so I've been really trying to get underneath the deepest questions of health. And I think I'm on to something really special with what we're doing at Adama Bioscience. I'm, I'm so, and this is why I'm so excited because what you're talking about is a foundational philosophical premise to the way that yeah. I always practice, which is yeah. what are some of the verticals around salutogenesis? How can we move yes. away from this like sort of disease and symptom management model yeah. to pr health promotion essentially? Yes. Um, so you mentioned health, uh, you know, your sort of different def uh, definition of health. Let's, yeah. let's talk about this specifically in the lens of females, because this is sure. largely my audience. I, I would suspect yeah. largely yours as well. Yeah. What is health optimization for females? I mean, so first we have to ask ourselves, what is health, right? And what is cellulogenesis? So like, let's just define those really quickly. Health is the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. And cellulogenesis is literally the process of becoming healthier. And so as a person becomes healthier and more resilient, it has more bioenergetic capacity, more energy to do work. Their body can actually be, bounce back when they get hit with a major stressor. Women and men are just made differently. And we need to accept the differences are real. And one of the biggest differences between men and women is women are largely oxytocin dominant and men are largely vasopressin dominant. So men's biological imperative is to protect the clan and to actually go out 
and find resources and to actually take care of the group. Women's jobs are actually largely to produce life and to basically be the, be the flirt. Like we create flourishing, right? Like we create literally when, when oxytocin is released during, um, during pregnancy, it enables the birth process. When oxytocin is released during breastfeeding, it enables the bonding process. So like we are literally designed to like create life, to create connection and to facilitate the nurturing of the species, because literally oxytocin actually helps build brain functions. Actually, it nourishes the prefrontal cortex. It facilitates social connection, social learning skills. It's super important for pair bonding. It's like we have this, the, the Taoism is really a fascinating perspective because it actually explains a lot of existence. And there's, there's a lot of polarities in existence and women's, our polarity is the yin, men's polarity is yang. I do believe we have essentially yin and yang within us. And I think I am more yang dominant female than most women are because I am, I do have a lot of positive masculine characteristics, but fundamentally I'm a woman and I'm here to help basically promote human flourishing. And that's really my perspective on health. But um, women are now in a world where we work and we raise children and we work. And so we have really extensive stressors on our, on our, on our shoulders. And men are in a world where they also work, but men, um, men need connection and love and they need it deeply to flourish as well. And I think what's really a problem in the world right now is there's like this massive sort of patriarchal masculine dominance to culture and society that really emerged around agricultural era. And that has really caused a huge amount of problems, but also a lot of, honestly, a lot of evolution in the positive direction, but also a lot of problems. So I think for us as women, we need to sort of reconcile our genetics are designed not for a world of danger. Our genetics are designed for helping humanity grow and flourish and thrive. And we're living in a very, very you know, crisis-ridden, dominant society that's really um, constantly filled with lots of threats. And chronic threats over time really do cause dysfunction in human biology. Um, we're really not designed to live in a society with this level of threat. Um, and it's a really challenging time to be alive for a lot of people. And so to be healthy these days, we have to basically be different than the vast majority of people. And um, as a woman, it's actually even more important to be healthy because your job is to like basically create the next generation of the species. And also like a lot of women create important companies and products. And we offer a really different perspective on life than men do. And so, um, you know, basically what I'm trying to figure out is how do women thrive in a society that's really designed for men? <laughs> you know, I, like, I completely agree with you. Yeah, no, this is such an important conversation because I, yeah. I, I too, very much like you, I'm female in, you know, my chromosomal yeah. constitution, but very much, uh, you know, if we're looking at masculine and feminine energy, very yeah. much yang, very much masculine, yeah. very driven, like the huntress. Like I always say, like yes. I'm all, the pursuit of success. Or the Wonder Woman. Remember Wonder Woman? One, all those yes. women and Wonder Woman, like that's us. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like we would have been Spartans one day, like in previous time we were in, we were Spartans, you know? Yes. So we have to reconcile, as you're saying, the nurturing, the softness, the surrender, the slowing down with child rearing, let's say, um, mm -hmm. as well as the pursuit of, you know, monetary success, accolades, like the letters behind your name and sure. the, all of those things. So yeah. I think that, and, you know, I've talked a lot about this on the podcast as well, and I don't want to knock too hard on the patriarchal and, and it's not, I'm not anti-men by, by any means. I'm not even a feminist. I know you're not. I'm actually very yes. much an egalitarian. 
Yes. I really want to build it. Cause I think the world uh, that, that, that that's been designed for men is actually harming men more than men realize. <laughs> I yes. think it's making their lives harder. And I think they're, they're having less love. There's less sex for men these days. Like because of women having this backlash against wanting to not be a wanting to not be raped, wanting to not be abused, wanting to not be assaulted. Like right. that's leading to less pleasure all around for everyone. And yes. like, there's a lot of fear between the sexes. And actually we need to let, we need to recognize that that fear is, is pulling us apart and not bringing us together. And that's really not healthy for every, for anyone. Yeah. Beautifully said. Like, and I, I was sort of, uh what I, what I was saying, and I'll just sort of round it out is that we've all, there's always been like hierarchies in some, some form. This one happens to be a patriarchal, patriarchal hierarchy, but to your point, you know, women are trying to figure out how to be masculine, you know, how to figure, how to sort of climb that patriarchal hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And what, what I have found, at least with my patients is they forget all about their other, like that feminine, that softer side. Um, so this is what, I, I, I've become very interested in, you know, my own personal journey, my own personal healing around this is like, I like to do, I like to do the do, right. I don't like to be the B, right. (laughs) So around reclaiming like desire and sexuality and sensuality, because one of the, one of the things I receptivity, you know? Yes. Beautifully said. I, I, cause I think that there's so many women like you and I all call, if I may call us sort of, or at least myself, a recovering type A personality is we can, uh, I don't want to say intimidate, but you can push away, um, you know, men in, in terms of if you're not able to sort of do the dance and oscillate between some of these different energies, whether it's in the, you know, the boardroom or the bedroom. Right. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about stress, uh, because you said, I I liked your definition, um, of health, which is the ability to adapt in the face of adversity. Again, taking a female Mm -hmm. specific lens. Mm -hmm. Um, so stress in the context of how women handle it, because I think, um, you know, it, at least in consensus medicine, um, yeah. and a lot of the literature, um, historically, most of the studies and it's, I know it's improving, but most of the studies traditionally, um, have excluded women by way of, let's say their menstrual cycle being, yes. being a confounding variable. So yeah. in your observation, in your research, um, how do women handle stress differently than men? Mm. Well, I mean, the reality is, is that there's really three ways that people handle like major, major stress. And, and there's like fight, fight, freeze, and freeze can be dissociate. But um, biologically, when women are hit with chronic stressors, right? So like, let's look at stress as like an aberration from homeostasis, right? Like your body is being challenged by something that's causing it to have to move its biomarkers in order to adapt to the challenge. So like acute stress, we, we have this design to have catecholamine release, to have cortisol release. That's, that actually is very adaptive. And actually these things in short term are extremely good for the body because it makes you stronger. So like, I'm really interested in mitohermesis. I'm really interested in how acute stress can make you stronger. I'm really interested as well in how chronic stress can break people. And what I've learned through my own self challenges is there's certain things that you can do that are mitohermetic stressors that actually will make you stronger if you are not in a state of chronic threat. So like, let's get like, you have to think about where's the body's baseline. If the body's baseline is like peacetime, everything's cool. You're living in Austin. Maybe like you're having a great time with your friends. Everyone's flourishing. 
you can go off and do the sauna and the cold plunge and you can do an occasional fast and your body will probably be fine and actually get a little bit stronger. Now you take the same person, put them in an environment of a war. And I guarantee that like you give them too many mitochondrial stressors and they will break because their level of stress is so high that they, there's no, like they're searching for food, right? They're trying to survive. And so the environment of the stress really changes the effect of the stress that so I want to give that first point. Um, so I was living in San Francisco a few years ago as an example. And 2019 was a pretty insane year for me because I had built a company. I was fundraising for it. I had raised a few million with this guy I was dating. And I was like basically on the path of becoming an executive at this company. And, and unfortunately there was some discrepancies and communication around equity. And so I decided to leave and also break up with this person. And I was in a, I was like, it's still a gung ho. I want to build a company around what I was trying to build, which was blood sugar monitoring and optimizing health using systems biology. But I kept on finding roadblocks. And the more I fasted and did HIIT training and did all these, you know, bioenergetic capacity building things, the more body, my body started being like, I don't know about that. And it was actually midsummer 2019. I had done, I mean, it's interesting because I, I don't think that these challenges were bad for me, but it just taught, I'm just gonna let you know they taught me things about myself. So it's almost like I was I was given this amazing gift, which was. I was basically given this opportunity to see that like, as my stress levels changed and as my stress levels went up, a lot of the things that I was doing to optimize my health were not working. <laughs> they weren't working the same. And I was like, what's changed? And what's changed was literally my allostatic load. So if you don't understand allostasis versus homeostasis, homeostasis is like your body's baseline functioning. And it's like your vital signs are a great example of homeostatic, homeostatic endpoints. Most of the um, healthcare system just focuses on homeostatic endpoints. I was interested in the last 10 years on dynamic endpoints because I was like, how are things changing over time? Because allostasis is, is, is how does your body maintain stability through change? So that's like blood sugar monitoring, HRV monitoring, and, and, you know, sleep monitoring and, and, um, and movement monitoring, by monitoring all these, um, dynamic endpoints, I was able to see, wow, my body is actually responding differently to fasting than it was in the past. I'm actually going, my blood sugar is going up instead of down. My, my ketones are not going up as high. Something is not working. And then I started looking at my hormones and I was like, uh Oh, <laughs> maybe I'm overdoing the fasting a little bit because my thyroid started getting, getting sluggish. And I was like, uh Oh, What's going on here? So then I started really asking myself, and by the way, the guy I was dating was like, you can do everything a man can do. You have the say, you can do anything we can do. You can fast as much as we can. You can stress yourself as much as I can. I'm like, I don't think that's right, actually. I think that I'm different than you. And I started realizing that women's bodies under chronic threat are going to actually like, think, think about if you were in a community, a clan, and you had a little bit of food to give everyone. A woman's body is so intimately tied to the survival of the group that actually she can turn down her metabolism rate. Her metabolic rate can go down literally to protect the, those around her to actually enable everyone else to eat. Like that is a fucking insane adaptation to exist, like to life, right? Like that would have kept the, the, the literally the species alive while men were going out and finding food. So that's when I realized a lot of women who are trying to lose weight, who are trying to have like a normal metabolism. But then I asked them, tell me about your stress. Tell me about your stress load. Tell me about your trauma. Tell me about all the things that are going on in your life. And you ask them, they are under so much threat that they're in basically wartime metabolism. And so um, Robert Navio has developed this theory called the cell danger response. 
And essentially the cell danger response basically teaches us that on a molecular level, our cells are going to prioritize survival over reproduction and, and, and literally survival of the species. And they're going to actually change functional metabolism in order to make sure you don't die. And so this is why women struggle with weight loss when they're so stressed. This is why women struggle with fertility when they are so anxious. This is why, you know, we have to actually look at the big picture to understand how do we get our body back into homeostasis? How do we get our body back into a, a sense of balance? And I have learned directly that like when I'm under chronic threat, I cannot lose weight. No matter what I do during the pandemic, I could, there was nothing I could do to lose weight. And then finally, when I started reconnecting with my community, I started spending time with my friends. I started traveling. I got, I got vaccinated. I went and saw my friends. I started spending time with people and groups. And slowly over 2021, my body started to remember it's safe. And slow, and then I started spending time with my family and I discovered, oh my God, I'm losing weight without even trying because I'm consistent with my exercise and I'm consistent with my safety signaling. And so this is really the biggest thing that I'm interested in right now is how do we learn safety? How do we relearn safety? And how, this is the biggest question in chronic disease today. How do you take a body out of chronic threat, especially bodies that are traumatized? And this is where the psychedelic revolution may play a role, but also may cause a mass amount of trauma if they're not careful. So beautifully said. Um, one of the things that I, um, I talk about a lot, I've written a book about it. I know you're writing a book as well, is this idea that your menstrual cycle is also a vital sign, the same way that heart rate, respiratory rate, oh, yeah. HRV, all, all of these blood pressure, all these sort of yeah. things that they would check in a hospital, let's say, if you were checking in. So one of the things that, you know, and you had said it, you know, I was, I was trying to lose weight and no matter what. And the first thing that I'll tell a woman who is trying to lose weight is tell me about your cycle. Tell me how heavy your bleed is. Tell me what you, what it's like the week or two before you start your bleed week. Oh yeah. Um, because these are, it's like a, you know, I, I sort of jokingly in the books call it like your hormonal report card, you know, because I'm yeah. Was like all about the A's. So like, can we, you know, Oh yeah. what was your report card this month? Yeah. Um, can I tell you about my report card this month? Tell me I about was, it. I was in Antarctica and I had the most amazing trip of my life, best trip of my entire life, but also metabolically challenging experience because of just like circadian rhythm disruption. And then the, the food on the boat, even though it was a luxury liner, they didn't really know how to accommodate for like 150 people that were crazy. And so all my friends are just nuts and like super amazing, crazy people. And like, I love, they're all entrepreneurs or investors. I know quite so a few people like, that were on that trip. Entrepreneur, yeah. yeah. Entrepreneurs, yeah, yeah. investors, and like, and, and musicians and performers, just yeah. some of the most extraordinary people I've ever met, but we didn't sleep. And there was a lot of vegetable oil in the food. There was a lot of sugar available to eat. And I don't eat a lot of vegetable oil or sugar. So my body started getting swollen and inflamed over the course of the trip. And I started feeling pretty crappy actually by the end of the trip. And I was like, man, this sucks. And, um, my gut wasn't working normally. And so this menstrual period, holy shit, I had the most insane cramps. I had clots. I had all sorts of things. And I know that my metabolism and my, my like stress levels are so tied to my menstruation. And I also had an argument the weekend before with someone that I really care about. That was really kind of intense argument. And I always look at my period as like, what am I processing emotionally? And I had the most painful period one night. I had to get a heating pad and my PEMF um, device. And I had to like hold it. And I was like, holy shit, I've not felt this level of menstrual cramp in a long time. And I, I really do think that like, look, it was all worth it at the end of the day, <laughs> but it was like, 
kind of an overwhelming experience to come back from something that was so amazing and be like, wow, I really stressed my body quite a lot on this trip. Like it was like Burning Man, returning from Burning Man and wasn't expecting to be like recovering from so many stressors. But I, I, I mean, over, overall, what it reminded me was like, basically you have to understand one thing about health and that health is all about capacity and capacitance. And like, literally we eat food, we drink water, we, we breathe air, it goes into our cells. It, it, it powers the electron transport chain that actually um, creates water from, and then it also creates an electrochemical gradient, which powers a hydrogen turbine, which creates a battery. And also the movement of charge creates a capacitor. So like, when I figured this out, finally understood metabolism, I was like, oh, so, you know, basically health is a product of how much capacitance I have. How much capacity do I have to actually handle the stressor? So fortunately, I was able to come back from this trip. I was able to like commit some time to recovery. It took me about a week to recover completely, to be honest with you. Um, but now, I mean, I'm looking in the mirror today and I'm like, I exercise, I'm eating right. My gut's starting to, I fixed my gut with some, some supplements. And I'm like starting to feel like I'm back to baseline, but we are going to have challenges in life, but we are going to have challenges sometimes that are fun. And the whole point of building health is that we get to spend it sometime. It's like money. You get ATP is money. If you have enough money, you can bounce back quickly from that stress. You know, like that is the point of building health is that you get to spend it. Sometimes you get to go out and challenge it and then you get to rebuild it. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. Yeah. And I think that that's a beautiful reminder, you know, of how quickly you can you know, how things can get out of balance, right? And it gives oh, yeah. you perspective for, you know, your clients, your patients who yeah. are dealing with chronic issues. And like every month, it's like, I feel like I'm being punished because I'm a woman. Yeah. But it's it's a beautiful, uh, I think sometimes at least, I mean, I, I have this tendency where if I'm not experiencing it, I also forget. So someone who's, let's say, starting out in keto, like I've, I mean, I've been sort yeah. of cyclical keto now for many, many years. But when I yeah. first started, I was like, you know, kind of back to like pretending like I'm a man. I was like, Peter Atia can for fast for seven days. I'm going to fast for oh, seven yep. days. Totally. Dom, Dom D'Agostino can deadlift five. I'm going to do this. Like, and I oh, love yeah. Dom. Like he's been on oh, the show. Yeah. Like he's a, he's a mentor for me, but I I've always sort of viewed myself as like, yeah. oh, I'm a smaller version of these, these giants, Same. these Titans, right? We're not. <laughs> We're not. Definitely Turns not. <laughs> Turns God. out we have this thing <laughs> called the reproductive cycle. That's really yeah. freaking important. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's actually, um, dive in a little bit into psychedelics and stress. So sure. we were talking about stress and trauma and, yeah. um, I think that this is, um, this is such a fulsome, such a colorful conversation. And I, I wanted to have yeah. it with you because of your work um, yeah. with psychedelics. So 
and I'll, and I'll share that. And I'm, I don't know if you found this as well, but when I was in school to become a doctor, I was mm-hmm. paradoxically the most unhealthy I've ever been. Oh my like, God. I was a disaster. <laughs> I was a fucking disaster. And I have yeah. to use a cuss word because yeah. I was literally not exercising, not sleeping, not eating and not connecting with people. And I was so a fucking mess. I was Sitting absolutely disaster. And studying in the library until they kicked you out and like finding yeah. somewhere else to study overnight. Like I was just like menstrual cycle gong show. Everything was a gong show, depressed, oh, yeah. disconnected, all of that. Yeah. Um, so let's, as we're talking about female stress um, and trauma, uh, we've had a lot of, um, you know, we've had Nicole LaPera on the show, Kelly Brogan, like a lot of, um, people I'd classify as like mental health, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. experts. Um, and I really like, um, the, the conversation around trauma being, uh, expanded to, um, you know, maybe some people will call it like big T, little T, like I've experienced big, big T, like physical abuse as a child, emotional uh, abuse that might be classified as little T or whatever, but, um, I don't know. I mean, it kind of depends. Um, well, I mean, like we'll call it know, big, we, we can get it, we can get into it. Yeah. Yeah. Aces so, basically aces. Right. Adverse childhood um, experiences. So for me, my adaptation to being told, you know, the things I was told to being hit and all of yeah. those things was to become hyper. And I've talked about this on the show before. So hyper my audience, yeah, is, is to be hyper independent, like super yep. masculine, controlling yep. the outcome. I have the algorithm and the whole ch- yep. flow chart already figured out hyper mm-hmm. successful. That's been, that's been my adaptation. It's protection. You want to protect yourself, right? right. Like right. same, same thing happened to me, by the way. I was like, so I didn't have a trauma in childhood, but there was traumas in my family that affected me and affected the difference, like basically affected where the energy and attention could go because like the tension couldn't go to me because I was fine. And so my core wound was nobody needs to worry about Molly because Molly's got her shit together. Molly can handle herself. Molly will take care of her issues. Molly can do anything she puts her mind to. And so I did, and I became very hard to control. I became very hard to discipline extremely opinionated, extremely hardworking, super good grades student. I literally like ran for student government the first day I went to a new school because I wanted to get on stage and tell everyone there that I knew I was in charge. Like I was like that level of ambitious. I was in varsity sports. I was in every club. I went to the university of Illinois. I excelled. I was like social chair of my sorority. And I was in all these different clubs. I was in all sorts of leadership positions. I was in student government. I had good grades. I worked in libraries. Like I was always trying to make myself feel safe by being on paper as perfect as possible. And by being this person who nobody could tell her how to do because she had her shit together. And it was constantly working myself into a pulp and basically burning out. And so I was like building and building and creating and then burning out. And, um, and for, unfortunately, like, you know, 20% of girls in college, I experienced um, rape couple times. And so I'm really open about it now because I really want women out there who are listening that are like me to know that like coming out about it and really tell, talking about it, like has changed the narrative I have around it. And the narrative is no longer traumatizing to me. And so because I've been able to like work through my shame and completely release all shame I have, I'm like a totally different person, but I have been studying the relationship between trauma and sexual function on relationship function, on bonding and pair and our ability to have secure attachment 
for like the last year. And studying all of this has led to me having even deeper breakthroughs than I had when I was in my uh, late twenties. Um, and part of the reason why I'm even in this space is I basically was studying metabolism and I was like asking myself, it seems like there's a pattern in people who use these devices. And it's like people who are, who know that they should not eat the cookie. They keep grasping for the cookie. But and I was why like, do they do it? Why yeah. do they buy, why do they buy the cookie? Like, why do right. they eat the cookie? Right. And I was like, underneath a lot of our programming is actually like people in our childhood and in our, in our formative years, when we are exposed to tra traumatic experiences, it actually changes the way our brains function. And it makes us fearful. It makes us threatened. It makes us sense this uncertainty and unsafety. And that unsafety signaling is deeply intertwined to oxytocin. And it's deeply intertwined with our ability to feel, actually feel the oxytocin. And if we have trauma, what can happen is that there can be problems with oxytocin receptor biology. And I won't get into the details right now because it's not really not necessary for most people, but you just need to know that like, if you, like I was a pretty fairly normal person until I had these traumatic sexual experiences in college and it changed me and it changed me in a way that made me very dissociated from my body. And I did not have normal sex. I had, um, hyperactive arousal, which means I didn't get wet. I had sexual pain because I didn't get wet. And then I would have an orgasm. I wouldn't or have an orgasm with a mat because I couldn't relax into sexual experiences. And as I started this company, because I really wanted to help women with my problem heal because I was able to heal from sexual trauma. I was like, man, what was it that caused this shift? And, and it was, um, first of all, I accidentally healed it using psychedelics with a partner in my late twenties, um, after burning man. And I didn't know what happened, but I knew that's before that experience with this guy, I had sexual dysfunction. And then afterwards I was like, wait, I have a normal sex life. I didn't even know what happened until like maps came along and started commercializing MDMA for PTSD. But then I looked at the diagnosis for PTSD and I was like, well, I didn't have PTSD, but I had traumatic, I had trauma. So I had sexual manifestations of trauma, but I had dissociated from the trauma so effectively that I didn't feel the PTSD. I just didn't even think about it the way that people did. I just like buried it. So, um, so basically I'm starting to discover, I've been discovering that like, essentially our body there, our body is like programmed to, to seek safety in our relationships, but oftentimes our relationships become unsafe because of traumatic relational social injury. So childhood abuse, childhood trauma, um, physical abuse, sexual abuse, all of these threaten our social safety signaling. And that actually creates the, the neurobiology of these people aren't safe. People that I, that I'm supposed to be close to aren't actually, they don't love me and they don't care for me. Right. So, um, unfortunately I'm really, I'm really passionate about pediatric trauma because it's so much more damaging to health than people realize. Um, adverse childhood experiences are highly linked to chronic disease and later life. And I've been trying to figure out why. And it's so important too, because, you know, to your point around childhood trauma, when someone has these wounds, these core wounds, and they are either unaware that they're at play, you end up selecting a partner that ends up re replicating the environment that you had as a child. So it's always, you know, and I did this, you know, I, you know, I've done this before as well, right? So you end up, you know, with partners that like, like if, as a woman, you know, you, if, and if you're a in a heterosexual relationship, you choose a partner that most 
maybe subconsciously or unconsciously reminds you of your father because you yeah. have you have these uh, set neurobiological pathways and you want whether or not they're good for you as a child if these pathways have been cemented you want to reactivate them as an adult and this is why we see you know the it's like the classic story of like the child who grew up in an alcoholic family ends up marrying the alcoholic you know because you identify the wound the you know that wound in your partner and that might be one of the first thing maybe that initial sexual attraction might be because it reminds you of your past and you're able to replicate that neurobiology person who was your caregiver right it reminds you of the earliest experience of love that you had and that love was dysfunctional because that person was dysfunctional right so it's like oh my god when you actually start talking to people like i had a call this girl yesterday who was a student um and she said i've heard about you i've heard about your journey with sexual trauma and i want you to i want to tell you about mine and i was asking her about what led her to make some decisions that ended up putting her in in dangerous situations. And it was like her family did not give her any of this sort of central tenets of secure attachment. They were not attuned to her emotions. They were not present for her. They did not encourage her to explore her inner and outer experience. They um, were not delighted to see her. All these things that you need to feel safe and secure, she did not get from her parents. And so she sought it and, and men who were not safe and who abused her. And it was like, if you really just look at like how kids are programmed, they need love to thrive and to flourish. And if they're not going to get it from the, from their parental figures, they're going to look for it elsewhere. And sometimes even if you get it from your parental figure, but your parental figure is dysfunctional, then you find yourself in dysfunctional relationships because that's what felt the closest thing to safe and loved as you could find as a child. And I mean, man, it's just like when you start really asking people about their narratives and you realize like, it so often just comes back to, did I feel loved and seen? Did I feel protected? Did I feel cared for? And if I didn't, how did I find that? Where did I look for it? And honestly, honestly, a lot of people look for it in addiction. They look for it in food. They look for it in a- a- alcohol. They look for it in cigarettes and drugs. And it's like, they'll never or socially ever... accepted addictions like work or right? work or shopping. For sure. You know, the, these are like, Oh, she's just going to the mall again. It's like, well, She's, she's trying to get a hit of dopamine. Like that's what exactly. she's Exactly. Or TikTok. Right. I mean, yeah. come on. Uh, look at, like, let's talk about electronic parenting and what that's going to do to kids. Like, holy shit, we are in for a really dysfunctional society. Honestly, I'm very concerned about America because fall of the Roman empire, we've seen it in the past. It's not like it's can't be predicted. And when a society gets this dysfunctional, it's not going to thrive. And so we like, I'm very, very concerned about what technology is doing to mental health. And I think this meta that's being built, this, this metaverse, um, I think it's just, it's just going to create so much dysfunction and disease. And we're going to see it, like it's, we're going to see it really destroy people. Um, I cannot see a world where it's going to make people healthier and happier. I just can't, like I haven't, I just, there's no, and all these people are like, oh, we're going to build mental health apps for the metaverse. You know what people really need is to be sit sit with, like you need someone to sit down with them be present, look them in the eye and listen. Like that is literally the cheapest and the most effective way to make a person feel safe is to someone be present for them and just be, just give them their attention and and give them your ear. You don't need a technology to go in between you and this person to facilitate that technology, that that interaction. Right. Um, But, you know, maybe I'm just like getting old. I don't know. (laughs) Um, I I just, no, I think, well, I think that's just a return. So 
Yeah. I, I think that's a return to honoring, you know, we've been having this conversation about how stress is different for women, you know, trauma for women. I think what you're yeah. talking about is honoring our neurobiology. Um, and I think that there's been, you know, to your point, I think that there's been a forgetting um, and there needs to be a remembering. There needs to be yeah. a, uh, you know, a reconnaissance of yeah. what it is to know, you know, your neighbor, how to feel safe in circle. How yeah. to, you know, we're, we're, and, you know, I'm sure you're up on the stats as well. Like I've interviewed, uh, 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 doctors and functional health, uh, care providers on like the loneliness epidemic and what that does to the brain, which is why I love psychedelics as an adjunct or a primary, uh, therapy, because I can speak to my, and I've spoken about this on the podcast, like my mm -hmm. own traumas from, you know, my childhood and, and, and upbringing, really left me very anxious, not able yeah. to trust people, like very yeah. deep, like mother wounds, father wounds, et cetera. Yeah. But doing the, I mean, my first couple of experiences, thankfully my sitters knew to give me MDMA because, yeah. um, you know, and uh, you know, MDMA sort of allows you to like, if a thought comes up and you're not quite ready to wrestle with it yet, you can just sort of like, you know, move it off to the side, but yeah. it, it allowed me to have empathy for them. Like it allowed yeah. me to see that my parents were just doing the best that they could with the, with the, with the tools that they had at the time. Yeah. Yes, they made yeah. mistakes. They weren't, it's not like a letting them off the hook, but it's a way to let me off the hook because yeah. I internalized all of those experiences as there's something wrong with me. I deserve yeah. the beats. I deserve to get hit because of who I am as a person versus my parents were overwhelmed. They didn't know what to do with a big energetic person like myself. And they had their own sort of cultural um, uh, templates uh, in terms of what to do with a child that misbehaves, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, I want to make a few really important points because we're going to talk, we're talking about illegal drugs right now. They're not fully legal. MDMA yes. is still in development. So I want to make it very clear to anyone listening because- mm -hmm. I already have people telling me, oh, I tried MDMA because I heard that you were, you know, that it's, it helped you. And I just want women to know and men to know that like, it doesn't always work. And the, here's why. A lot of people do not get properly prepared for psychedelic experiences. Yes, yes. And so their mindset going in is filled with anxiety and fear. A lot of people do not have psychedelic experiences in the proper environment. So they get interrupted by things that cause threat or danger signaling. A lot of people um, do not, take the right dose. And so they end up harming themselves because they're literally way higher than they want to be. Um, a lot of people take the medicine with the wrong person around and, and people can take advantage of you when you are on intoxicants and psychedelics. So you have to understand the safeguards before you even think about taking psychedelic drugs, because you could hurt yourself. Like you can really, really hurt yourself. And I, I, I always try to give a disclaimer because everyone's like, oh, psychedelics rock. They changed my life. And it's like, I used to be that way. And then I started hearing stories from women who started doing therapy sessions with people that they didn't know very well. And they came out more traumatized than they did go, than they had going in because they dug up all their trauma. They didn't feel safe. And what happens if you don't feel safe and you've dug up your trauma is that when you have a threat signal in your mind with large amounts of oxytocin, your body has this beautiful ability to hit the vasopressin receptor in a state of threat. And the vasopressin receptor means I'm going to survive and get you the fuck out of the dangerous situation. Problem is problem with this is that 
it actually activates vasopressin signaling. So if this is the craziest thing, oxytocin is not much different than vasopressin. And oxytocin has the capacity to activate the vasopressin receptor. But the biggest difference in whether it's gonna activate oxytocin receptor and vasopressin receptor has to do with how safe you feel in the experience. And so you can go and do drugs with your friends, but if you get into a dangerous situation with your friends, you might end up with that after that weekend feeling totally shattered and freaking af- totally afraid. So this is why it's like, so like, for example, I was at Burning Man and I was having an awesome time. I was in this amazing hot outfit. I mean, it was probably the sexiest outfit I've ever worn at Burning Man. And I was dancing and I was like, so having this like vibe and some guy runs up to me who's drunk, freaking out. He's like, I love you. And he starts picking me up and shaking me. And I am freaking out. And I like peed my pants. I swear to God, it was the most frightening experience. And I was like, totally a mess after that. I mean, it ruined my night. And I had to go back to my tent and like hold myself because I was like so traumatized by the experience of being just picked up by a random stranger. So like, keep in mind that these things, they are context dependent and context is internal context and context is external context. And if you understand this, you'll understand why it's so important to know your shaman. <laughs> so important to know who you're with when you do these medicines, because people on, you know, I'm a very trusting person but there are a lot of bad people out there. And there are a lot of very, very dark energy in the psychedelic space. There's a lot of shamans that are total charlatans. And there's women being abused sexually because they're vulnerable in these experiences. And if you don't know that, then you're putting yourself at major risk. And honestly, I'm just here to tell women and men that like we have to have ourselves have a much higher standard. There's already stories coming out about the psychedelic space having a dark side. And those are not made up stories. These are real people who've had real experiences being truly, truly manipulated and traumatized because of the vulnerability of the neuroplasticity of these medicines. So I will also add that the the ketamine space is both transformative. And I mean, I would not have been able to get through the the, the pandemic without sublingual ketamine. It was like game-changing for my ability to thrive in the midst of adversity. I don't actually need it anymore, but I needed it during the pandemic because I was like, I cannot function. And yet there are lots of companies that are selling sublingual ketamine without proper safeguards, without proper training, without proper integration, without proper preparation. And people are getting hurt because they don't know what they're doing. And so it's like, I'm just as much of a cheerleader for this movement as I am a like super critic, because I think that this movement is like actually hurting people. And if, and, and as, as doctors, we're trying to do no harm. And so you have to always ask, okay, what is this medicine space doing to people positively and what's happening negatively? And like, if we don't talk about the negatives, then we're not actually helping people get healthier because we can't protect people who aren't informed. Well, that's the whole, yes. So I'm so glad that you said that. I mean, yes, it is still a schedule one drug. There is technically right now, no uh, approved use for any of these uh, psychedelics that we're talking sure. about. And we're well, not- technically ketamine is legal, but it's not approved for, I mean, it's proof for depression but it's not approved for like your burnout, for example, which I used it for burnout, but it wasn't, but burnout and depression are basically very similar neurobiology, just different, different causes. You know, depression is often life events. Burnout is often work related. And to me, depression is like global shutdown of the body when it loses its energy capacity to mean, because it can't meet the demands of the stressors and the body has to go into an energy saving mode. Similarly, burnout is literally like, your mitochondria are just like, I can't do it anymore. I need a break. I need to recharge. I can't work this this much this long without 
becoming dysfunctional. Yeah. And, you know, you said something really important, which is this idea of informed consent, which is sort of a through line of the, truly the entire show. You know, we can present ideas that you may say, oh, that's interesting. And then be like, eh, it's not for me or part of it is for me. So I'm going to take a little bit of what she said, maybe the stress response, but I'm not quite ready for ayahuasca or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, not everyone should take psychedelics. I have a friend who's got a brother with schizophrenia, definitely not recommending him take psychedelics. Anyone with a family history of psychosis, do not touch them. Do not even go near them. You do not, you do not want to risk it with your, with your biology. Yes, absolutely. Um, what have been, um, just in, I want, I'm just trying to, uh, I know that we have sort of a certain amount of time with our, with our chat today. Um, yeah. what has been, um, for you when we talk about, uh, you had mentioned a little bit and I wanted to maybe just double click on it a little bit. Um, sure. some of the, the benefits on the other side of, uh, you know, there's always like the, the intervention, right? We have the right yeah. set, the right setting, but then the integration afterwards is I think where all the money, sh- like where, did, where oh, like the yeah. real healing happens. Um, yeah. In terms of your own history, your sexual trauma and reconciling that, how have n- not just the psychedelics, but then the integration afterwards, what have been some practices for you that have really yeah. uh, sort of been game changers, if you will? Okay. I'd say like, the biggest ones for me have been, um, the internal family systems model. So if you don't know internal family systems, read the book, no bad parts. Um, I developed a questionnaire for my integration. Um, the part of the integration as part of the protocol I've designed for ketamine therapy, that's based on really getting to know, uh, yourself. And I'm talking yourself from your childhood to now, and all those are all the people that you've been through your, your entire life and any part of yourself that's been traumatized needs to be addressed specifically. So the exiles are the traumatized, traumatized parts of ourselves. The firefighters are the parts of ourselves that try to numb the pain and try to like put out the fire with like anything that will just stop the emotions. And then the manager is the one that just takes charge and like takes over and says, I'm going to manage all this. I'm going to make sure that everything is stable. But there's also the way that I've developed my framework around IFS is how do I get to know every age of myself? How do I get to know was that like, what was that person's problem? Like, what was the problem of my, what was I dealing with in third grade? What was I dealing with in fifth grade? And, and as I understand who I am, how do I understand what were patterns of my behavior that were conditioned by my parents and what is me and what is the conditioning of my mother's behavior and my father's behavior. And how did that affect the way I function? And then I've also added to my framework, you're the sort of lower self and higher self. And this is a bit more of a spiritual framework, but it's like, who am I when I'm at my best and who am I when I'm at my worst? And how do I really notice when I'm being in my lower self and how do I work more and more and more towards my highest self? And like, what, what, how do I create the conditions for the highest self to emerge? And, um, so spirituality has been a big part of my, uh, my growth. Meditation has been a big part of my growth. Um, I started doing meditation retreats, um, after I had this Kundalini awakening, which by the way, was spurred by three days of fasting, lots of sexual frustration because I was on a, what I thought was a date with a guy that nothing happened. And then I finished it by a really beautiful meal. And then I had, um, I had like hit training and weightlifting and sauna at the gym. So I was doing all these things for bioenergetic capacity building. And then I went and met with my community. And then that night I went home in my bed and I was thinking about building psychedelic, me- psychedelic medicine company. And I was envision- envisioning these clinics overlooking the ocean and coming out of peak experiences and being transformed. And I started having this like total full body involuntary orgasm. 
And so after that happened to me, that like crazy experience of my nervous system, completely unlocking a ton of energy, I was unable to ground myself properly. So I actually had to start doing meditation retreats because I was like, I need to go sit and, and, and I can't, I don't even know what to do all of all this energy and Kundalini awakening can be like very destabilizing for people. And my, am no exception. So I actually had to go to Maui and like, like live there for three months and like ground, like get, I used that three months to use internal family systems to actually get to know all of my shadow and to like really examine the parts of myself I didn't love and didn't, did not like. And it was that deep sense of self-compassion and love and attention and care and nourishing and nurturing of those parts of myself that were injured and, and that were, that were hurt that actually led to total transformation of my consciousness. And then over and over again was challenged during the pandemic to re-examine the parts of myself that I didn't want to see the behaviors that I should not be engaging in. And it was like, it was constantly returning to this deep sense of compassion, this deep sense of compassion. And it took me two relationships during the pandemic to realize that I was seeking love outside of myself and I didn't truly love me. And so working on self-love, working on the narrative I had around my relationship to me. And I started exploring the narratives I was telling myself around my parents and my own family and my own attachment dysfunction because of the way that I had changed from trauma in my twenties. And it was like reading this book called Attachment Disturbances Adults Comprehensive Repair that I discovered that I needed to start practicing these tenets of secure attachment with my loved ones, with my friends, with my pets, with my parents. And I was able to actually reestablish an understanding of the narrative I was telling that was true versus the parts of the narrative that were just not true and re rewriting the narrative in a way. Um, so narrative therapy is really powerful. Attachment therapy is really powerful. I'm also kind of a do-it-yourself kind of person. I've actually gone to therapists and been like, hey, I really want to work with you. And they're like, no, you just need like spiritual coach. You're, you're fine. And I was like, okay, well, I guess I don't need a therapist. So I would read books for therapists and take courses for therapists. And I spent a lot of time studying Dan Siegel's work on attachment. And it was really understanding the role of trauma and changing my neurobiology and the role of attachment and the role of narrative around myself and my parents that actually led to a honestly, like I'm a different person. <laughs> I'm like, I want to share this with the world because I'm just like, like really learning this stuff and practicing it does change reality. And, and, and it's just, you have to know how to change. So, um, there's a great podcast by, um, Andrew Huberman about trauma and how trauma reprocessing is really powerful, but also you have to reprocess the trauma in a place of safety. And then you have to reattach a new narrative to the trauma. That's positive. And that actually is what I was basically doing. I didn't even know I was really doing it, but I, I had done a lot of um, processing of the trauma from a place of without fear. And then I did a lot of re rewriting it through just reestablish, like just literally sitting with my loved ones and friends and being like, Hey, this happened to me and I'm okay. And I'm better. And I'm going to, and like, it, it's, it's astonishing that this is doable. And so um yeah. I mean, I'd say those are the biggest impactful things I, I've done. And also I would say the big one thing, the big thing that most women don't do enough of is self-care. So you know, we, we can talk about that in another podcast, but I'd love to come back and do an even longer podcast with you. I know this is too short, but this has been amazing. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. There needs to be a part two here. And, you know, just to, in finishing, I think that that's the long game. That's the play, like beyond the calories and the macro composition of the diet. It's like, how can we learn to love ourselves? So um, thank you so much that's for it. it. 
Yeah. How can we learn to, because I'm, I promise you the body, like the body keeps score as the book, uh, as the book suggests, uh, Bessel, Bender, I'm going to butcher. You know what? Reading the book by Shauna Shapiro too. Um, good morning. I love you. Hmm. The simplest practice of waking up and looking in the mirror and telling yourself how much you love yourself. I just love you. That is oxytocin you're getting every time you practice self-compassion. So the more that you can give and associate yourself with safety and find that safety inside, the more you will become more and more free to experience life at, at its best. What a perfect place to end part one. Uh, Molly, thank you so much. This has been an enlightening conversation and we'll get you back in for part two. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. All right, all right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 